Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening. What? Apologies, Maestro. Not you again. What is it this time? Jelly in your French carpet? Ach, the lever, why do I put up with this? <laughs> Ready to lift again! Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode six. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter Six. Let me see your wound. Flaina raised her hands to open the enchanter's soiled tunic. He waved her away. Let it wait until after supper. Now you listen, Gaywan. You can't possibly convince me that your dizziness on the road was due to hunger. But Flaina... <laughs> they both looked to where the grinning elf reclined in his chair. The mighty man fells mountain man. Yet he's no match for his consort. Enchanter and Half-Elf darted insults with their eyes at Clough, then returned to their argument. There's nothing more to be done, and I won't have you bearing my chest for all to see in here. Having reached Hopetown by near first sunset, the small company of friends had first stabled their weary horses, then headed for one of the town's most popular supping places the Brass Dragon Tavern and Inn, where they now waited hungrily at one of the long tables for hot food. Flaina had hoped to take a moment to inspect Gaywan's chest wound, still worried about complications, but he remained resistive to her efforts. Around them rolled the pleasant hubbub of townsfolk and travelers either already eating or just getting settled. Four of the six other long tables were partially or completely occupied, as well as some of the more private small tables along the front windows and one side wall. Normally, Gaywand and his associates preferred the intimacy of the small tables, but one had to make a specific food order and then wait for its preparation, as opposed to the more immediate service at what was commonly called the bread and stew boards. Having not eaten since the previous night, they had unanimously elected for the bread and stew board. There was a tacit agreement not to discuss anything about their failed manhunt and its outcome while rubbing elbows with others at the same table. After all the fighters who show off their battle scars in here, and you're shy? He slumped against the back of his chair in surrender and exchanged a rueful glance with Gon, who smirked back at him. <laughs> Gear up, lad. The dwarf shifted forward on the pack upon which he sat to give him serviceable height at the table. You know she's got the upper hand. Gawan nodded reluctantly, then glanced hopefully at the kitchen doorway. 
As if in response to his silent wish, the thin curtain separating great room and kitchen was pushed aside by a small girl balancing two large bowls brimming with hot stew. Behind her came another attendant lugging platters holding bread, cheese, wooden bowls, and spoons. Well, here is supper. Flaina wagged a finger at him. I won't have you running off to visit Trimble without letting me tend you. After supper, you are mine. He smiled lovingly at her. My love, I am yours any time. The half-elf's stern brow softened, a playful smile hinting across her lips. But with a single word that once was heard, he held the pretty lady. Gaywan and Fanny <laughs> grabbed and tossed wooden spoons at the elf. He ducked under the table. Mmm. Gon praised the spicy smells permeating mm. the air over the table. Thansgar. He nudged his close friend gently in the ribs. Mm. Food's here. The archer snapped awake mm. from his propped mm. elbow. Uh. With his other hand, he had been balancing his dagger on its point during the entire scene between Gawan and Flaina, and had catnapped while waiting for supper. With a neighborly nod at the other guests at the table already starting to eat, Gon reached for the pitcher of Trisk to refill his cup, then shoved it at his friend. Aye, high time to drown me beard. Where's Clough? Come on out. You're safe. For the moment. The elf reappeared cautiously from where he had been hiding from any more flying spoons and peered quizzically at the bowls of steaming stew, mm. the block of hard yellow cheese already being whittled away, and the two round golden brown loaves of bread. Looks challenging. Do you think we can win? Across from him, Gawan tore off a hunk of bread and handed it to him. If you'll give us back our spoons, we can. Aye. Thasgard dug in and dolloped a generous amount in his bowl before passing the rest on to the next man. Even while I was deputy under the marshal, I never missed a regular supper here. With not another word spoken, the five friends tucked into their respective bowls. The pleasant camaraderie of the tavern closed in about the long table as each of them enjoyed their first full supper in several days. A good while later, when their bowls were cold and only crumbs of bread and cheese remained on the platters in front of them, the tavern was still just as busy with hungry townsfolk. Gawan reclined and cast a loggy eye around the table, his belly pleasantly full and warm. Resting his head on a propped elbow, Clough stared sleepily off into another part of the great room, <laughs> while beside him, Thasgar chided Gon's bottomless thirst. Matter gone, gone dry. The dwarf was running a lone finger along the inside of his empty cup in search of a few final drops of Trisk. The table's pitcher had been drained only a few moments before. Took longer than usual this time. <laughs> Not for the first time did Gawan marvel at Gon's tremendous capacity for drink in contrast to his size. You're just hiding your size. Your legs are just as long as my own, except you use them for holding drink. <laughs> mm. Feeling relaxed and content for the moment, Gawan surveyed the tavern's great room, a place he had called home for many reads. Sunsdown had long since passed by, the windows of the inn revealing street lanterns and starry skies beyond their rippled visages. The brass dragon still held a sizable complement of evening guests, all the bread and stew boards now surrounded by hungry folk. As an afterthought, he checked his coin pouch and estimated how much he and Flaina had left for the next few days. With their failure to collar Calron, money was going to be tight. Don't worry about that stuff, Gawan. Gon had a teasing gleam in his brown eyes. The enchanter frowned with mild perplexity, unaware of what Gon was about. What are you saying? Glancing furtively left and right to make sure the other guests at the table had gone or were listening to other things, mm. the dwarf winked mysteriously and pointed a finger at the pack upon which he was sitting. For that mountain man barged in on us in the cave, I managed to whittle and chip a fair mount off a biggin. Gawan's eyes grew round as he realized what his friend was saying. Really? He had lamented having been too occupied with Rolf and Gunther to have taken time to collect a few smaller gems in the cave. Just one small chip of white sapphire would buy three moons worth of provisions easily. 
Do you think us old mine workers would have let such a fine dig go untouched? How much? This was news to her as well. She noted Clough's clever smile as he pressed his finger onto some cheese crumbs and licked it clean. Gon shrugged carelessly. Lots exactly how much, I don't know. We thought we'd surprise you with it. <sighs> I'd say you succeeded. Gawan's mind was a whirl. Well... Clough clapped his hands to his belt. What say we go interrupt the jewelsmith's supper and find out what our modest haul is worth? Aye. <sighs> Turstall and Whist rarely lock their door while the mines are open. Agreed. Gawan was halted by a firm hand on his shoulder. Oh, not you, love. We're getting a room where I can clean and redress your wound properly. Shrugging into his riding cloak, Clough grinned at his love brother's woeful expression. You can play with us later, Gawan, if Honorable Physician Flina will allow when she's done with you. Gawan shook his head slowly with wide eyes. Not for a lifetime will she be done with me. Then received a pinch from Flina. Ouch! Clough and Thasgar headed for the tavern doors. Gon gingerly slid off his chair, winked again at the couple, then grabbed his pack with both hands and tottered off after the other two. Stepping down the veranda into the cobblestone street, Clough sniffed the night air. Behind him, Thasgar held the door for Gon. Here, Gon. Thank you. Then leaned over and muttered a joke he had overheard at another table. Did you hear this one? Why did a good wife have come? The dwarf smiled as he slung his pack over his shoulder and maneuvered the steps down to the street. Across from the tavern, a trading post's doors were still open with the cheerful glow of lamplight spilling onto its veranda. A soft wind with a coolness portending the approaching autumn drifted down the street, making the lanterns swing slightly on their posts. The smooth cobblestones, worn with weather and age, sparkled dully in the lights. Not far away, a lone horse and wagon trotted through the town square, while a handful of townsfolk walked the streets to unknown destinations. The three men leisurely rounded a corner and proceeded down the narrower street. Ahead of them, two hanging lanterns illuminated a worn but readable sign stating in neatly painted letters, Turstall and Whist Jewelsmiths. Beneath this pronouncement were the explanatory qualifications for the proprietors. Trading, encrusting, engraving, appraisals. Not daring to speak of their purpose until they were safe within the small building adjoining the larger bakery they were passing. Hopetown was not without its unscrupulous thieves and rumor mongers. Clough and Thasgar held the shop door for gone. <coughs> My lord, I that. <laughs> then followed him inside. Barely glancing at the many items of jewelry and gem cutting on display, they approached the counter. A small man with gray hair curled in snug waves against his head emerged from behind an open door beyond. Wiping his hands fastidiously on his leather apron, he smiled cautiously. Yes? How may we serve? Gon swung his pack up onto the polished desk. We want to trade these for gold and silver. Clough and Thasgar leaned casually against the counter as the elderly man patiently untied the straps on Gon's pack. From the weight of it, I would guess you haven't separated your stones from their bedrock very well. We get a percentage of their value if we do the refining for you. When he yanked open the pack, his eyes nearly popped out of their sockets at the glittering pile of crystal. Ah, by the gods! He stuck a hand inside and sifted through the many slivers, splinters, and chunks of white sapphire. You can't be serious! This sack must weigh at least two stones! Removing a single rough-cut gem from the pack, he weighed it in his palm, then looked first at Gon, then at Clough and Thasgar. I've seen you three around town for Riyadh. He relaxed a little, winking an eye at them. <laughs> this is a jest, no? Simple water quartz, the fool's gem. Sorry, Turstall. This is not a joke, and these are not fool's gems. Hmm, I see... He drummed the fingers of his free hand as he inspected the gem more closely. Where did you get these? From a place we hope never to see again. 
Turstall's eyes flicked from Gon to Clough to Thasgar. West! Come here, please, sir. We have a problem. He ruffled his gray hair with his fingers as he looked back at his customers. Problem? A middle-aged dwarf with a salt-and-pepper beard reaching to the middle of his chest emerged from the door behind the counter. What's going on? He stopped and scrutinized the three men waiting expectantly, then dabbed a cloth napkin at the corners of his mouth, obviously interrupted during his supper. Whist, I presume? Aye, lad. The gray-haired dwarf eyeballed the elf, then stuffed the napkin into a shirt pocket and lifted a long ceramic pipe from a smaller table next to the doorway. I'm Whist, and you're Clough, second to that odd fellow Gaywong. Seeing his mild astonishment... I make it a point to know those who have worked for the marshal in the past, and those who can be trusted. He nodded deferentially at Thasgar. Good to see you, deputy. Aye. Gon was not visible to him yet, both dwarves' shortness preventing their seeing the other side of the counter. Whist, please take a look at these. Turstall, though several fingers taller than his associates, showed a respectful regard for the aging dwarf. Too short to see over the counter, Whist had long before remedied the situation, tramping onto his step box behind the counter and perusing the pack with its haul of coarsely cut gems. Nonplussed and not moving his eyes away from the stones, he handed his pipe to Turstall, then closed his hand around the eyepiece that replaced it. This is not something one sees very often. He arranged the eyepiece on his brow, then scooped more of the pack's contents out and spread them across the smooth counter, selecting one of the largest chunks and inspecting it closely with his lens. He opened his free hand at Turstall, who placed a small tool within it. Hmm. Good form. Very rough cut marks. Gon shifted uncomfortably at this comment, but knew as well as his companions that neatness had not been an option. Meanwhile, Turstall picked through the heap of white sapphires and selected a few smaller chunks. Whist finished and handed his eyepiece to Turstall, along with the stone he had inspected. Now it was Turstall's turn, mm. though he spent less time than Whist. Good fire in these samples. Clearly these have been cut from a rare formation. He placed the eyepiece and the sample aside and exchanged a questioning look with his partner. My associate is in error. Hmm. This is a problem for you, not us. Problem he raised a nimble now. hand to halt the burst of questions. For you see, these are white sapphire, and of superior grade, but... They're not tradable? Whist wiggled a finger at him. Listen here, youngin. I'm sure that you know the rarity and high value of white sapphire. Obviously, seeing as you want to trade. I high value comes from scarcity. White sapphire such as this you've graced us with is so valuable that we can afford only one or two of your largest pieces here. He held up the chunk he had inspected. Why, this piece alone must be worth several thousand in gold coin. Your entire heap would make the king's vault sit up and take notice. Oh. Gon's bushy eyebrow shot up with amazement, and he looked to see Clough and Thasgar looking just as stunned. Aye, that. They had not expected such a generous appraisal, especially in a town with several mines close by. Will you be bringing more? Wist's pointed gaze moved to each of them in turn. No, sir. Might anyone else find the same source? No one will ever find this place again, not even ourselves. Very well. Whist shifted his stance and leaned with outward calmness on the counter. Now, do not worry that just because we can't afford to have you swimming in a vat of gold coins that we're going to let you wander out of here unhappy, I'm sure my associate would agree with me on this matter. He glanced sidelong at Turstall, who nodded eagerly. We are prepared to offer you the following. If you allow our humble establishment to vault your stones here, and this means you cannot trade with anyone else then we will do our best to trade your sapphires on the market when we deem the price best. In so doing, we prevent a flood of these rare gems on the market, thus maintaining its value. But we can trade for one or two? Yes, we withdraw numerous crests from our account at the Royal Post in town. Enough for you and yours to afford the finest Hopetown has to offer. But you understand the trade and value balance? He observed mute nods. Good. He reached for his pipe again and started meticulously packing its bowl with brown smoking leaf from a pouch on his belt. 
Besides, I doubt you'd be able to carry all the gold this heap is worth, even if Hopetown had all of it. Do you have any other gems or stones to trade? This is all we have. All they have? <laughs> but what, what, what do we do when our money is gone from this trade? Why? By then I would hope Turstall and I would have more to give you. However... He gestured a warning with his long pipe stem. We won't empty our coffers completely. Each time we do so, we will trade you for no more than a few hundred gold pieces. A few hundred? Thasgar had grown up in a poor family. I trust that will be sufficient. Wist smothered a smirk with his pipe and reached for a candle burning nearby. In other words, we have just secured our fortune for many riads. Do remember us when your pocket's empty. He nodded at Turstall and suddenly smiled around his pipe as he lit it with the candle. Turstall placed all the stone fragments into a shallow wooden box under the desk and, when he was done, brought out a piece of parchment and a quill. The Royal Post will accept our voucher in exchange for gold from our coffers kept there. His partner dipped the quill's point in ink and scratched monetary instructions on the parchment. And of course, if you decide you'd rather trade with someone else, we will give you back what gems are left. But let me warn you, they won't be as generous as us. We'll keep our trading with you and Turstall. Clough gazed skyward as he philosophized. Greed is for the man poor in heart. Whist puffed on his pipe, wreathing his face in blue smoke, then peered at Turstall. Alacrity, my fellow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I care not to hear much more of their good cheer whilst they dust our chests bare. With a flourish of the quill, he applied his own signature, then handed it to the dwarf. Scribbling his own mark beneath his partner's, Whist then handed the thick paper to Gon. Clough clapped his hands to their shoulders. My friends, a small celebration is in order. Trisk! Gon rolled the parchment and stuffed it into his shirt. <coughs> we shall start with a vat for my friend. <laughs> the three of them headed for the door. What are you two going to drink? God's grace, you have returned. I was getting a little worried. The Athenium Keeper's face brightened with pleasure as a pinch wing flew around his head, crooning happily. Gaewan stomped happily through the doors in a swirl of his green cloak with Lena in his wake. Stopping at the Keeper's desk, he took the little man's hands in his own in greeting. My dear Trimble, you haven't lost any more hair this moon, though. He looked at the winged lizard hovering over Trimble, blithely whirring its wings with the speed of a hummingbird. Muff looks a bit fatter. Oh yes, he's been finding quite a few mice in here lately. The pinchwing hissed with a long, thin, forked tongue at Gaewan's observation, then dropped onto his head and scratched at the few hairs left growing from the sides of his shiny pate. Oh hush, Muff. <laughs> Gaewan's just poking fun. Though she was familiar with the mage and his wardmate, Flaina never could shake the sense of wonder at seeing the unusual creature that reminded her of an intricate ornament depicting a dragon come to life. About two hands long, pinchwings have large yellow eyes that glow at night, long claws curling out of its four feet, and large incisors giving it a fierce appearance despite its small size. Rare and usually quite wild, when found in the civilized lands, it is only in service as a wardmate to a mage, relating what it sees, hears, feels, and, to a limited extent, thinks to its master. Muff's scales, reflecting bright green in the lamplight, seemed out of place next to Trimble's simple brown tunic and breeches, though the mage did affect a wine-colored cloak when he ventured outside. I must confess I was concerned with your taking the manhunt for Calron. I checked in on you with my crystal from time to time, but couldn't discern much. Gaewan grimaced as he half sat, half leaned on Trimble's large desk. <sighs> Wasn't much to see, to be honest. We found him, foiled an extravagant plan of his, but then lost him. The little man nodded with commiseration. I know it's small consolation, but you did well to find him. He's a snake, always writhing out of one's grasp. Else, I would have caught him long before he became a fugitive. I did try to warn you when you... Yes, I know.
but as usual, I went ahead anyway. Lifting his pinch wing from his head and placing it on the desk where it curled up for a nap, Tremble turned to Flana, standing tentatively beside Gaywood. I don't mean to ignore you, my dear. I'm very happy to see both of you alive and well. Manhunts can be such dangerous tasks when a renegade mage is the culprit. There were moments when I wondered if we would lose one or another of us. His chest wounds will testify to that. Wounded, my friend? By his magics? No, no, no. Flesh wounds from his lover, strangely enough. But our excellent physician, Flana, is taking very good care of me. Trimble smiled approvingly at the half-elf. Your knowledge of body physics has served well, though I dislike hearing you've had to use it. I'll be all right. Caloron won't be if he ever shows himself here again. His brown eyes hardened for a moment, glittering with a hint of the powerful mage beneath the mild facade. He knows not to come near me, else he risks disenchantment and then execution under the marshal's decree. I almost wish he were so arrogant. There were times when we wondered if we would survive finding him. She stepped out from Gaewan's shadow and leaned comfortably on the other corner of the desk. But that's behind us now, so don't let me distract you. I'm just keeping Gaewan company and making sure he doesn't wander off somewhere without me. Go ahead and visit. Oh, I wish it was as simple as that. But with Calron still free, Gaewan has more on his mind than just nattering with me. What do you mean? I was afraid to say anything about it. You have every right to be angry with me for taking on the manhunt. We lost him. There's nothing to be angry about. She shrugged. Remember we all made that choice to go after him. I'm just happy we lived to tell about it. He shook his head. You don't understand. Now that Calron has lost in a confrontation with me, he'll be looking for vengeance. Something for which he's notorious. Trimble nodded succinctly at this statement. I will have to be very circumspect in my everyday life. You mean we, love? You weren't the only one there, as I recall. But it will be me he seeks for revenge. And he'll find the rest of us beside you. Trimble beamed with pride at her defiance of the situation, then leaned over and patted her hand gently with his as he turned his eyes to Gaywan. Keep her close, my friend. A purer gem you shall never find. The half-elf's serious expression yielded in the warmth of his compliment, and she smiled sweetly at him. I intend to. And to do so, I will need to better my skills, especially with Calron lurking in my future. He wanted to allow time to cogitate over the other important events of their journey, stopping time with the mysterious crystal and meeting the demigod dragon lords, before mentioning them to his mentor. So much had happened in such a short time, he wasn't sure he fully comprehended all of it. Very well. Trimble clasped his hands expectantly on the desktop amidst a small scatter of parchments and a large ring of keys. I know you, dear pupil. You've come to me for something. So, what can the Magian Alliance Athenium do for you? Am I eligible for advancement as an enchanter? Looking immediately thoughtful, hmm. the keeper reached down and opened a drawer. Just a moment. Removing a large book, he placed it on the desktop, opened its tarnished brass latches, and heaved the thick cover aside, then began thumbing through its thick leaves. Momentarily taking her attention away from Trimble's mutterings as he poured over the book, Flana gazed around the stone Athenium, having been within only a couple of times. The central chamber was large and roughly rectangular in shape, the great room of a former castle, with many small aisles extending away from the central construct. Shelves loaded with hundreds of scrolls, parchments, and books reached halfway up to the triangular beams supporting the high ceiling. The temptation to wander is difficult to resist. The many shadowed aisles and stacks of knowledge beckoning to be explored. She felt a slight sting of envy at her consort and his privileges. Forever able to lose himself within the ancient studies of power and magic whenever he desired. Ah, 
Day one's record, one moon study in the mage's classification, switched to enchant where you've remained for, hmm, over seven riads. Has it been that long? The more accurate question would be, has it been long enough? You should be ready for advancement to the third circle. He slid his eyes over to Flana and winked. That is, if a certain higher authority approves. What do you think, my dear? Plucking the jest as thrown, she feigned a serious scowl. Oh, I can't be sure. His behavior has been, well, shall we say, odd. Gawan rolled his eyes to the ceiling. <sighs> now why would you say that? She paced around him as if inspecting a horse on the auction block. Riding elfin horses and performing with minstrels in your younger days and consorting with innocent elfin maidens such as myself. She stared wide-eyed at him, her lips pursed in a wry smile. Wouldn't you agree this was odd? Gawan leaned forward with both palms on the desktop and dropped his head resignedly. Oh, I never should have told you to look for me in the Athenium. While Malidan and I sailed to meet Rothson in Foran, he lifted his head to glare with mock annoyance at his mentor. You just had to tell her all about me, didn't you? Trimble lifted his eyebrows guiltily. There were idle moments when I just couldn't help myself. So glad I'm such an easy fellow to talk about. He took Flaina's hand in his own. At least this fair lady appreciates me, or... Then eyed her with mock scrutiny. Perhaps that's what she's led me to believe. He lifted his eyebrows conspiratorially at Trimble. One can never tell with elfin women. She snatched her hand away jealously. And just how much do you know about women? His tongue pressed against the inside of his cheek. Not enough, apparently, as I keep consorting with at least one. She crossed her arms haughtily and turned away, pretending utter disdain. Which is why I need to advance my knowledge, in order that I gain an intimate understanding of the mystery surrounding these beautiful creatures. He gazed adoringly at her. Eyeing him sidelong, Flaina finally gave in. On that note, I have to yield, sir. She offered him her hand to kiss. Gawan knelt as he did so. Trimble observed the sparkle of fondness in the half-elf's eye as Gawan's head was bowed over her fingers. He smiled to himself in gladness of their obvious, deep affection for one another. At the same time, he noted how Gawan, as always, wielded his charm like a weapon and, to his knowledge, almost always with success. Now, he returned to his feet and the subject and Am I qualified for initiation into the Third Circle? Their game over for the moment, and honor satisfied, Flaina rested her hip against the side of the desk, tucked a lock of her long auburn hair behind a tapered ear, and listened contentedly. You do remember the spiritual laws regarding the limitations of material study and the dangers of excessiveness. Dangers? Flaina had not heard of this. Mages, she knew, seemed to always be devouring one tome of magic or another whenever they can. She knew enchanters were different, but not the specifics. If one tries to absorb too much in their study of enchant, the power flow they would experience would be like someone who eats so much food, they explode. Do mages have the same limitations? Responding pleasantly to her questions, Trimble always enjoyed an inquisitive student. The flow of magical energy is tied to the psychic power, which fluctuates in cycles like the seasons, though in periods of days and not moons, thus like the flowers and trees blossoming in spring and sleeping in winter, there are times when the mage should rest. The alternative, using magics when the psychic energies are at ebb, results in severe detriment to the mage such as blemishes and scars on their bodies, malforming of limbs, and eventual madness. That sounds terrible. Madness? He shrugged. Well, the energies must come from somewhere when called for, and if the psychic is withdrawn, the demand for the magic is taken from the body and spirit. 
And there's very little the art of the physic can do to heal injury from the psychic like that. Listening intently, the half-elf nodded her understanding with a worrisome glance at Gaewan. But this doesn't occur to enchanters? No, enchanters merely channel power, not manipulate nor generate. She remembered some of what Gaewan had wielded lately. I wouldn't say merely. Truth. And the time required to temper one's chakras and tap into the audible sound current takes far more concentration and dedication than most mages care to devote. I don't mean to interrupt this discourse, Tremble. Gawan stood free of the desk and crossed his arms. But can we answer my question before going further into your lesson? Give me a moment. The mage searched the enchanter's eyes silently. Gawan gazed steadily back then rubbed his round chin as he gazed at the air surrounding his student. Flana restrained an amused grin at the incongruity of a man of Gawan's height and build, seeking judgment from one of Trimble's small stature, though the keeper of the Athenium was no wisp of grass in the wind, just lacking in height. Mind you, Rothson would have been the best judge of your inner strengths. Gawan nodded solemnly. Yes, I know. But he has translated, and there are no other master enchanters. You are the only mage with any knowledge of the path. With interest, Trimble's scrutinizing gaze followed an invisible line between man and woman. The hint of a knowing smile played across his lips. What do you see? Gawan recognized the technique for seeing auras. Your aura is free of malignant color, therefore your intent is pure. What is required is a test of your strength and balance. On the conjuring ground, you've mentioned your wounds. Do you feel up to it? Gawan considered the question for only the briefest instant. If you mean now, I would say, yes, I'm not at my best. I don't understand. Better to know if my strengths can match the test when I feel less than fully recovered. With Calron out there somewhere, I'd rather have confidence in my abilities rather than concern. Well said. He snatched his keys from the desk. Let us proceed. May I observe? Certainly, though I recommend you stand against the outer wall. This test can be a bit startling for the uninitiated. Is there a real danger? Trimble looked expectantly at Gawain. Not danger, no, but the sensations of enchant out of control is akin to being dropped into a pool of icy water amidst summer. It can leave you disoriented and a bit dizzy if you come in contact with it. Your kind warning is taken, Trimble, but I trust Gawain, too. She smiled encouragingly at her chosen. Very well. The test begins. He led the way shifting back a dusty tapestry to reveal an alcove sheltering a heavy, iron-reinforced great leaf door. Unlocking it, then hanging the keys on the wall next to it, he shoved it open and descended a short stair that emptied onto a walled circle of raked dirt with sparse tufts of grass or wildflowers. Originally, the inner bailey of the old keep in which the Athenium was housed on the southwest border of Hopetown, the wall was very thick and high enough to keep passers-by from seeing or hearing what was within. Ancient, however, its embrace ended in a crumbling pile opposite the keep. The tumble of failed mortar and fallen stone was dominated by a large patch of old great-leaf trees, their large leaves and branches providing an opaque screen to the woods and vineyards beyond. The twilit sky was painted with streaks of purple clouds as the last beams of sunset receded. With a careless toss of his hand, Trimble set a pair of sconces aflame beside the doorframe giving a quarter of the yard a wash of fitful yellow light. This being her first time on the conjuring grounds, Flana glanced about, then decided the best place was to sit there on the steps with a quick retreat offered by the door they had just come through. Behind towered the four-story keep, its upper windows staring darkly out over the yard. Watching as Trimble and Gawan headed for positions opposite each other, she was just settling herself when, with no warning, Simga! The maid flung what looked to be a handful of sparks that whirled and flew directly toward his pupil. 
Just turning to face him, Gaewon reacted instantly, bringing up both hands and crossing the first two fingers of each over the other, thumbs extended and touching. The momentary storm of attacking fireflies dissipated against an invisible shield. Startled, Flaina blinked with fascination, having not expected the sudden, somewhat aggressive move from the older mage. Very good, you were listening. Gaewon lowered his hands and looked over at his chosen. He declared the test began as we left the chamber. Beware distractions, Zimga. Another flurry of sparks shot toward the enchanter who brought his hands up just barely in time, a few getting past his defense and hitting him with a crackle like firewood. He winced. That stings. Twould be worse if I were Calron. I? Is this all of your test? Trimble kept his hands up, fingers splayed in spell-casting position. No, just an assessment. And a helpful warning. The eventual goal of an enchanter is to be a continual channel for the higher powers, always in touch with them, even slightly. To do this requires careful control, the main focus of your next level. Up to now, you've channeled power easily upon your whim as needed, much like plucking a grape in the vineyards when you're hungry. This test is different. He dropped his hands. Gaewon followed. You will make a power sphere and hold it between us. Do not let it go until I tell you to. Understood? Yes. Of all Gaewon's talents as an enchanter, Flaina had seen only a few power spheres, but she knew... Power spheres are the most amazing. And she couldn't help but worry. After our grueling journey, as well as his wounds and the mountain men this morning, if this test will truly tax him beyond his strengths this evening. A power sphere was aptly named, being a containment by an enchanter of those energies he was able to focus at any given time. Much like trying to hold a wild horse if one did not have practiced discipline over one's random thoughts. Raising his hands level with his eyes, Gaewon stared intently between his fingers as he made the shape of a ball with his palms and concentrated. Flaina saw his back shudder slightly, just before a shimmering, pulsing sphere of bright light emerged, its surface of gold and green shifting hypnotically, casting undulating shadows across the conjuring ground and overpowering the relatively weaker glow of the door sconces. Slowly, he moved his hands in a spinning, tossing motion, then directed the fingers of one hand gently towards Trimble. The power sphere floated into the space between both men and hovered. Trimble brought up his hands and flung another storm of sparks into the coruscating sphere. Then another. Plano watched as Gaelon, his hands still moving as if molding a ball, stared into his manifestation concentrating on maintaining it, not letting it fly on. What's Flaina doing? Gaewon did not reply. Good. What of this? A sheet of flame flew from Trimble's hands, cutting across the yard, but absorbed by the sphere. Flaina could see Gaewon controlling his breathing, still watching. Now, Gaewon, release! He clapped his hands together. An explosion of bright green and gold sparks burst upward and a blast of compressed air resulted, momentarily blinding Flaina, and she blinked to recover. When she could finally see, Gaewon was still standing but looked wilted, out of breath. He glanced reassuringly at her, then looked expectantly at his mentor. Excellent! Trimble brushed his hands with finality. You are more than ready for advancement. (sighs) And a drink of something sweet... Holding it while you attacked was more tiring than I thought. Hell, holding it was bad enough. Trimble looked at Flaina. This is why many seek the easier path of magic. Casting spells from the psychic flow does not require so much self-control. Is the test done? Gaewon still held his place. Oh, yes, yes, of course. The test is completed. You may relax. Just making sure. A wise fellow you have there, he remarked to Flaina as she went to Gaewon and hugged him. Wise enough to care about me, but not wise enough to stay out of your yard. Quite true, many would agree. The enchanter started up the steps arm in arm with his lady. Trimble stopped him with a touch on his shoulder. 
Gaewon turned to face him and accepted his congratulatory handclasp. But probably clever enough to relax and enjoy some celebratory trisk from my cellar, my dear enchanter of the third circle. Chapter 7 He ran through the Stygian darkness toward the dim glow ahead, his boots betraying his location with echoes along the crumbling corridor. But stealth no longer mattered. They had his scent and were close on his heels. To stop now would mean a certain grisly death under their razor claws. A sharp stab of pain lanced up from his side, his labored muscles protesting the extended run, and he nearly stumbled. Spitting epithets at his weakness, he pressed the hand of his uninjured arm into his side and threw himself into a desperate dash for the archway looming ahead. Beaten and bedraggled and holding a bleeding arm at his side, Calron bolted from the lost city's decaying gateway and ran to the nearest cuffs of close trees. Stumbling to a halt within their leafy obscurity, he gulped air unevenly, trying to be as quiet as he could, while at the same time looking around to get his bearings as his pulse pounded loudly in his ears. The failing twilight might have provided cover from other pursuers, but giant rats, being nocturnal for the most part, would have an easy hunt if he didn't stop them now. Cautiously, he peered around the leaves of the tree he leaned against and searched the trail leading back to the vine-choked archway. Not moving, he waited, knowing the voracious tenacity and the intelligence of the oversized rodents. The area beyond the lost city was out of their preferred territory in the labyrinths of the underground, but they weren't so apprehensive as to give up on prey that had nearly been theirs to devour. They would foray beyond those familiar tunnels only after a careful scrutiny of the immediate area. The dog-sized rodents could just as quickly become the prey above ground. His arm throbbed with pain as he recalled the instant they had attacked him out of nowhere and without provocation. Out of reflex, he had raised an arm against their ravenous onslaught and gotten deep gashes from their fangs and claws. If not for his repulsion of them with a flash of conjured fire he had thrown, he would have fallen then and there. With his few precious moments of opportunity, he turned and ran for his life hoping his memory of the swiftly passing tunnels and intersections would see him to the exit ahead of them. <sighs> Breathing easier now, he kept his gaze locked on the gloom beneath the archway, waiting for the inevitable. The longer he lingered, however, the more his wound hurt, and he got restless, but resisted the urge to move on. He kept picturing a swarm of the filthy creature surging out of the mountain and descending upon him before he got ten paces further. Thus, he was determined to wait them out. Around him, the mountain forest fell silent except for the errant chirps of some early crickets greeting the approaching night. And then he saw them, their eyes glinting red as they peered out at the trail and the forest, seeking their escaped quarry. Now was the best time to discourage them while they were gathered in one spot. Stepping out from behind the tree, he flung his free hand toward the entrance to the lost city, calling the ancient command. Riot! A streak of crimson red flashed from his fingertips, swelling into a ball of fire and exploded. Flames, debris, and clumps of bloody flesh burst out in all directions, the unlucky rats' high-pitched squeals of death reverberating throughout the surrounding forest. Pieces of the stone entryway, already cracked from age, clattered to the ground in the aftermath. He stepped back behind the tree and waited as the forest fell quiet again, making sure nothing came out of the underground. The sky faded from purple to black as the stars brightened. He waited for just a bit longer, trusting his heightened paranoia for the moment. When he was finally satisfied, he turned and headed down the overgrown trail, the thick layer of decaying leaves muffling his departure. Walking a good stretch, despite his fatigue, he wanted as much distance as possible from the scattered rat carcasses, which would no doubt attract hungry animals during the night. He finally stopped in a small clearing. 
First he called forth a pale red sphere of witch-light and inspected his arm. Judging the gashes to be more painful than serious, he uncorked a file of water hanging from a small corded bag attached to his belt and washed out the wounds. Then he tore a strip out of his cloak's lining and wrapped his arm as best he could in order to keep it clean until scabs formed. Done with this immediate concern, he gathered tinder for fire among the underbrush and tossed it carelessly into the center of the clearing. The night promised to be cool, and he had no blanket. At one point, as he shuffled about, kicking aside brush to find suitable wood, he thought he heard something else moving nearby and stopped. Standing perfectly still, he moved eyes left and right and listened. There were only insects and a distant wildcat yowling a territorial challenge. Guessing whatever he heard was probably just as inconsequential, he returned to the task at hand, eventually collecting enough firewood to see him through the night. Sitting wearily, he flicked the fingers of one hand at the pile of wood and muttered the necessary incantation. Instantly, flames puffed into being, and soon the wood was crackling merrily. Just as he was leaning back to make himself comfortable, his wounded arm was snatched in a merciless grip and twisted painfully behind his back. An elbow appeared and locked around his neck and jerked him tight. Now who's going to break who in half? Gunther! Calron tried to ease the constricting pressure on his throat as he clawed the strong arm with his free hand. I thought you were dead! Far from it, master. You managed to burn up a handful of my friends back there. Now it's your turn. Still holding him firmly by the neck, the fair-haired man dragged him closer to the fire. We'll start with your face and move down from there. No, no, wait! The great mage Calron, master of the lost city. Enslave grubs, force me and Rolf to do your will. And now, just as Gawon overpowered you, so have I. You cooked my rats under the archway, but no spell could save you from me. It wasn't my fault. Oh, I disagree, master. Gunther jerked him around and breathed into his face. If you'd have let me kill Gawan at the first, none of this would have happened. Holding the front of Calron's tunic bunched in his hand, his other still bending the mage's wounded arm, he shook him violently. And after you ran off like the coward you are, he murdered Tisha and Rolf and got your precious white sapphire. He got the dragon stone? Calron's blue-white eyes widened in disbelief and indignation despite his extremely vulnerable position. He supposed no one survived what he presumed had been an enraged dragon whose roar shook the lower vaults where he had run to escape the fight and the prowess of Gawan and his companions. I had it first, but his woman shot me with an arrow and knocked me down. When I came to, the cave was empty except for the mountain man. It was all I could do to evade his dogs and roll back that boulder blocking the door. Empty? Where was the dragon? Gone. Gunther tossed him aside like a puppet and sat resignedly, arms resting on his knees. Rolf's body was still there. I would have buried him, but the dogs heard me moving about, so I had to run. He turned eyes bloodshot with fatigue and anger to the stars overhead. I kissed him before I left. His lips were cold. Calron nodded in careful thought as he stared into the fire. So Gawan lives, it would seem. Not for long. I know they came from Hopetown, so that's where I'll find him and his woman. And the crystal. You won't be able to get near him while he has it. What do you mean? Did he unlock its secrets? What did you see? The younger man glared with disgust at him. I saw nothing, Calron. I'm merely piling my pebbles. There were no other bodies but Rolf's. The dragon was gone. The crystal was gone. Ah, yes. Calron rocked back and forth on his haunches. Therefore, the crystal must have allowed him to enslave the dragon. You're right, of course. It would be foolish of me to seek him out directly. Gunther shook his head with disbelief. Even after you've burned your hands, you still want to pursue that 
damned crystal. As many have said before, the battle may be lost, but the war goes on. But listen to yourself, Gunther. You've just said you plan to go find him in Hopetown. If I can't approach him, neither can you. I don't want him, Calron. I want his woman. It was her arrow that stopped me. I'll make her regret it, too. She will feel my arrow. He squeezed a hand on his genitals. I will put my babies inside her and make her mine. Besides, he smiled secretly. Tisha has already wrought our vengeance on Gawan Forest. It won't be long now. The mage's eyebrows went up with this realization. I hadn't thought about that. He probably hasn't either. Not that it would make any difference. <laughs> what a lovely world it can be when one's enemy brings about his own destruction. I want his woman, and I will get her. Calron regarded him appreciably. I like your determination, my friend. Don't call me that. I haven't decided to let you live yet. I just wanted to talk to someone for a little while. Ah, but you are my friend, because you will wreak a lusty revenge on Gawan's whore, and I will help you. Gunther glowered at him. You will do nothing but stay out of my way. Gladly. He shifted to a more comfortable position, satisfied that his immediate demise at the were-rat's hands had met a delay, one that would allow him ample opportunity to do his own killing, if necessary. But allow me to ensure your revenge is successful. The younger man narrowed his eyes and stared off into the forest. Oh, I will succeed. Once she feels me inside her, she'll never want for another. The spell I have in mind will guarantee it. He lunged over and gripped Calron's wounded arm tightly. Do you think I would be so stupid as to let you cast one of your curses over me? No! No, that's not how it will work! He pried the powerful fingers off his arm and tried to shove him back. I will make a charm for you to use when you get close to her. She won't know anything until it's too late. Settling back in his place, the younger man blinked at him as if just noticing him for the first time. <sighs> you have my interest. Have you used it often? I've never been able to use it on myself. The spell is designed to be used by all but the caster. Mm. I've performed it for others to bed their friends' wives. And it's never failed. He grinned slyly. Wouldn't it be better, more pleasurable, to take her willingly? Gunther considered this for a moment. Aye, it would. But what about you? How will you get his crystal? As it so happens, my counterstroke is already in motion against that doddering old man, Trimble, the overbearing Marshal Garnet, Hopetown itself. His blue-white eyes glittered with hardness in the firelight. Gaewon will merely be another victim. Once you have his whore, he'll be too distracted with losing her to notice my coming. The younger man nodded carefully. Very well. As long as you don't get in my way. He cast a sidelong look of sincere earnest at the younger man. I wouldn't dream of it, Gunther. All right. He leaned back and crossed his arms. How does this charm of yours work? of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 6 are performed by Richard Hammer, Aridel Hotelling, Kevin Norris, Jim Marshall, and H. The Great and Powerful. 
The novel and its sequels making up a quintology, so far at present, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.